Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child and adolescent psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioral and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access the references mentioned here. Today, I will be talking about ADHD, its increasing prevalence as a diagnosis for children, adolescents and adults, and why we should be worried about this. It is 20 years since the publication of my book, Rethinking ADHD, written together with my distinguished colleagues, Dr. Vicki Anderson, a neuropsychologist, and Tim Godber, psychologist. At that time, as practitioners in child and adolescent services in public and private practice, we were concerned about what appeared to be an epidemic of diagnosis of ADD and ADHD in children and young people, and the potential risk factors associated with these blanket diagnoses. Our book was preceded by training programs and workshops we ran in Melbourne and interstate to promote a critical appraisal of the evidence. We also presented alternative ways of understanding the behavior of children and young people which in all of its complex etiology was funneled down only one final common pathway, namely that of an ADD or ADHD medical type diagnosis. At the time of writing the book, we found that diagnoses of ADD or ADHD were subject to a wide range of variables. For example, a higher proportion of boys were being diagnosed, which raised the question, did they all drink the water? Through the detective work of our colleague, Tim Godber, and his background in public health, we discovered that demographics played a considerable role in the diagnosis of ADHD. Aside from a higher proportion of boys being diagnosed, we discovered that socioeconomic status played a role, as well as the traumatic history of the children diagnosed, particularly those in out-of-home care, most surprisingly, we discovered that postcodes had a major influence on diagnosis. For example, Western Australia, with one of the smallest populations in Australia, had the highest prescription rate at the time, more than six times the rate per person in Victoria. We discovered through our sleuthing that small numbers of medical practitioners in certain areas were responsible for high prescription rates. Similar findings at the time were observed in the United States, where rates of diagnosis also varied widely between the different states. The health commentator Norman Swan stated at the time that when you see variations like this in medicine and health, then you know you are not dealing with evidence-based treatment, but opinion-based treatment. However, 
now in 2023, after it seemed, and we hoped, that this epidemic of diagnosis of ADHD had been largely laid to rest, the pendulum has swung back, and it has done so with a vengeance. Despite the fact that no new evidence has come to the fore concerning the validity of the diagnosis in the form of an absolute biological or psychological marker or tests, we now face an avalanche of demands from parents of children, including now girls, for the diagnosis. There is also an increasing demand from adults for the diagnosis and medication as of right. To this has been added a discourse amongst adults claiming that they are convinced that all of the difficulties in their lives, relationally, in terms of lack of achievements and other issues, were largely due to the fact that they should have been diagnosed with ADD or ADHD as children, and that they suffered a lifetime of unhappiness because this diagnosis was never made available to them. This discourse becomes difficult to ignore when it is also promoted by people who are in the public eye and who become influencers, as it were, of this way of thinking, which has led disturbingly to many people engaging in self-diagnosis. Before I continue with my argument about why we should be highly vigilant about this new tsunami of diagnoses, I want to make clear, as we did in our book, Rethinking ADHD, that I am not in denial about the existence of attentional problems, whether in children, adolescents or adults. I'm not in denial about the existence of disruptive and inappropriate behaviours that affect cognitive development and positive developmental outcomes. As a clinician, I see these every day. The question we need to ask ourselves is why we ignore the multiplicity of emotional and social factors that give rise to these behaviours. As my colleague Tim Godber explained in our book, he said, we live in an age when the same level of scientific measurement, explanation and control that appears to be available for events that occur in the physical world is demanded of troublesome psychological phenomena, despite the inherently complex and unpredictable nature of human behavior. So we may long for a simple one-stop answer to all of our problems, but as H.L. Mencken reminded us many years ago, there is a simple answer to everything, and it is always wrong. In this talk, I will address some of the multiplicity of the emotional, developmental and social factors that I believe give rise to behaviours that come to be diagnosed with ADHD. But before I do so, I want to comment on the problems associated with professionals and others who declare that ADHD is a definitive, discrete medical disorder linked largely to neurological function. When we drill down into the research, we find that there is no evidence, as I said earlier, in the form of a reliable biological marker to support this position. There is no imaging test, no blood test, or any other physiological parameter that clearly defines the condition or its chemical treatment. I will summarize some of this evidence to date. As I mentioned, there is no single determinant. Most of the evidence suggesting a biological cause of ADHD is derived from the observation that over 75% of children appear to respond positively to stimulant medication. 
This has led extraordinarily to the treatment itself becoming the diagnostic tool. However, further research suggests that this positive response is derived from studies conducted with methodologies in which there has been no attempt to blind patients, parents or therapists to the treatment being offered so that the placebo effect may play a large part in the result. While the calming effect of stimulant therapy may be perceived as the unique response to ADHD, this calming response from stimulant medication can be seen in many children and adults, whether or not they are diagnosed with ADHD. So response to stimulant medication in and of itself does not provide sufficient evidence for the existence of ADHD. There is the further problem that medication has been found to improve ADHD symptoms in the short term only and to have minimal impact on longer term functioning. The search for biological markers in the form of gene identification continues to be elusive, while the extreme variation of diagnosis continues worldwide. These variations confirm the kinds of biases that we found in our summary of the research two decades ago that suggest both a level of subjectivity and cultural bias. Rating scales as well have been found to be unreliable and often inconsistent, subject as they are to the biases of the responders, such as parents and teachers. It is not uncommon in the school setting, for example, for teachers to identify children as having ADHD and demanding that parents have their diagnosis confirmed. This is clearly not an acceptable way to proceed with respect to the problems the child or young person presents. It is clear, therefore, that ADHD does not meet the requirements for the existence of a discrete diagnostic biological category. And this is where we need to turn our attention to the pharmaceutical industry, or big pharma, as it has come to be known, and the role it plays and has played in the promotion of the diagnosis. The multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry has infiltrated the medical profession over many years and sponsors so-called educational conferences on ADHD for medical professionals and researchers in the field. We cannot deny the place of collusion here. We also need to be aware that the mainstay of all psychiatric diagnosis the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, generally known as DSM, is also funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Many of the parent support groups for children diagnosed with ADHD, particularly in the United States, are funded by Big Pharma. We should not assume that the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is unassailable or a tablet of stone. Its latest iteration has been criticised by the Division of Clinical Psychology of the British Psychological Society, who launched a challenge criticising its conceptual and empirical limitations. In their position statement, they argued for a paradigm shift in the way in which issues of mental health are understood. While not denying the place of biology, they are critical of the medicalization disease model of distress and behavior. They argue further for the acknowledgement of the evidence base for psychosocial causation 
and multifactorial elements to be taken into account in mental illness formulation. In particular, they argue for the inclusion of the social, cultural, personal, and familial contexts that surround the patient and the presenting problem. Other professionals, including psychiatrists worldwide, happily have launched various clinical and cultural critiques of the medical model of ADHD. I will mention just a few of these studies, starting with a systematic scoping review that was carried out in 2021 by Louise Kester and colleagues as part of a pediatric investigation that they published in the online JAMA, J-A-M-A Open Network. They reviewed over 12,000 studies and found evidence of ADHD overdiagnosis and overtreatment and point to the need for further research on both the long-term effects of the diagnosis and of the medication. A resounding criticism of the extensive overdiagnosis of ADHD comes from a group of psychiatrists, including Sami Tamimi, the long-term British advocate for non-pathological diagnoses of children. Their paper in 2004 in the Clinical Child and Family Psychology Review is a critique of the international consensus statement on ADHD. They challenge the lack of debate on the issue and they make the point, and I quote, history teaches us again and again that one generation's most therapeutic ideas and practices, especially when applied to the powerless, are repudiated by the next, but not without leaving countless victims in their wake, close quotes. A further challenge to what is described as the ADHD consensus was made in Sweden in 2016 by Erlandsen and Ponzi in the International Journal of Qualitative Studies in Health and Wellbeing. They raised concerns about the lack of evidence about the long-term benefits and risks of stimulant medication and the urgent need to consider the life situations and social dilemmas of the children and adolescents who are being diagnosed. In this respect, it is significant that the current guidelines of the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence in the UK, otherwise known as NICE, also acknowledge the uncertainty over the long-term adverse effects of medication. They further list the prevalence of ADHD diagnosis in myriad vulnerable groups of both children, adolescents, as well as adults. These critiques overall urge us to take a more contextual approach and comment on our fast-paced digital and media environment, the economic upheavals in our post-industrial world, and the societal, global, and climate uncertainties that threaten to overwhelm us. All of these factors, they state, affect not only our capacity for attention, but also how our attention itself becomes modified by these pressures. In this context, we cannot avoid the significance of the recent and still current pandemic of COVID-19 that has swept the world. Millions of us have been confined to our homes for nearly two years. Children in the thrust of their development have had their development put on hold or even arrested. The closure of schools during this period placed huge pressure on parents to homeschool their children while maintaining their own employment and indeed their sanity at times. How could a return to school 
or a semblance of normal life not be affected? How could our attentional capacity as adults and that of our children not be affected? This is a huge, complex problem for which the rapid disposal diagnosis of ADHD is not the answer. These monumental psychosocial problems require an imaginative and community-wide mental health response from local, state and federal governments that has never been forthcoming. Instead, we find that everything has become individualized. Mental health is described as a personal problem, an individual responsibility, often taken out of a relational and social context. People, therefore, find themselves essentially on their own, on long waiting lists for psychologists, not to speak of psychiatrists who had pre-COVID instituted long waiting lists as a matter of course. One of the most damaging aspects of the current limited biobehavioral discourse surrounding the diagnosis of ADHD is that it considers that the emotional, social, relational, and psycholog psychological problems of the child or indeed adult, as the product or consequence of having ADHD rather than its cause. This kind of cart before the horse thinking with its old fashioned split between nature and nurture denies all up-to-date scientific and human relations evidence. This is the evidence that gives precedence to the interconnections between the biological and the psychological and to the social elements that give rise to who we are and become. The worst part of this approach is that it strips all behavior of meaning and context. Individuals, whether adults or parents, are not at fault because they struggle to make sense of their experience and most importantly struggle to find help for themselves in an increasingly shrinking and overburdened health service that talks a lot about mental health but does not offer much of it. We therefore cannot avoid the conclusion that it suits the health service to simply pay for medication, rather than to spend the time, the money and the energy to, into exploring the root causes of this explosion of diagnoses. Consider for a moment, if this were a sudden explosion of a physical disease, it would be unthinkable for health and government departments to ignore it, and they would have to launch an urgent inquiry into how and why this has occurred. But mental health is always the Cinderella waiting in the wings. In the rush for an ADHD diagnosis, we have also not considered, or at least have not become informed, about the long-term potentially stigmatizing label of this condition, both for children and adults. The American psychiatrist Peter Bregan, who has been a long-standing critic of the explosion of the ADHD diagnosis, makes the point that a diagnosis of an of apparent brain malfunction, while so consoling in the short term, may at a later time come to haunt the recipient of the label with respect to future educational and employment opportunities. For example, what effect will this diagnosis have on their life insurance policies, he says, on security clearances and on licenses to operate machinery, motor vehicles and aircraft? The hacking of medical systems of our personal data, which has become commonplace, should certainly give us pause for thought in this respect. Peter Bregan also states that one of the core reasons for overdiagnosing ADHD is that it appears to offer an individual solution couched in the language of disease and healing, 
for what are in reality complex social problems. So how can we better understand and manage these problems? As an experienced child and adolescent psychotherapist, I would view the cluster of symptoms generally associated with ADHD as representing a breakdown in a complex chain of events and experiences that operate on several different levels. These are firstly, the inner world of the child. What is it that they actually experience and what sense do they make of their world? Secondly, and most importantly, there is the relationship between the child and their parents and family. What is the quality of this relationship? Next is a question about what I would call the psychosomatic. Are there any biological and physical vulnerabilities in the child's history? Then there is the social element and the child's capacity to develop friendships and pro-social behaviours. Then the educational. What is the child's potential for and curiosity about learning? Finally, what is happening in the broader environment for the child? Is the environment sustainable and facilitating for the child? Has there been violence in the family or poverty or deprivation? Is the child in out-of-home care? These are the questions that need to be considered when we are dealing with attentional and indeed all behavioral problems. We may find it easy to slap on a diagnosis of ADHD for the child when this may represent nothing more than a kind of general arrival point or railway station that does not take into account the complexity and eventfulness of the journey. Even that attention or the lack of it is at the core of the ADHD diagnosis. We need to understand more clearly how attention develops in the first instance. We know from years of research in infant mental health and the recognition of the critical role of attachment and bonding in the first weeks and months of life, how the development of attention emerges as part of a relational experience. The famous child analyst and paediatrician Donald Winnicott said, the child looks at the mother or indeed father and sees himself or herself. Daniel Stern, the pioneering infant parent researcher states, the infant comes into the world with formidable capacities. Immediately, they are a partner in shaping their first and foremost relationships. Knowing this, we start from the recognition that the child-parent dialogue and interaction is the fundamental dialogue and interaction for life, which creates the potential for mutuality, reciprocity, and above all, shared meaning. It is this dynamic interaction that gives rise to the capacity for attention and cognitive development. Given the interactive underpinning of our experience growing up with our parents and families, we recognize that behavior, all behavior, how dif however difficult and challenging in children, always has meaning and is always a communication. This assumption is not intended to blame parents, but rather to help them reframe children's behavior as having meaning and thereby actually avoid blame and recrimination. Ascribing meaning to behavior helps to open up communication rather than to close it down and avoids an adversarial approach. So I'm talking about a human scaffold in which relationships are the essential building blocks between the child, adolescent, and their parents. 
The next part of the scaffold is the recognition that all behaviour has meaning and is always a communication. In other words, children through their behaviour always speak the family. The emotional status of the parent inevitably becomes the emotional status of the child. Whatever is happening to the parent through stress, illness, divorce, separation, anxiety, depression, family violence, is also happening in a sense to the child. The final part of the scaffold, what may be said to hold it all together, is what I call the emotional milestones of development. The lack of a developmental perspective is one of the issues of greatest concern regarding ADHD diagnoses. All children and young people have to meet the tasks and challenges of different developmental stages as they progress from infancy through to adulthood. A focus on development and what I call the developmental tasks of each age and stage enable us to, enables us to identify what constitutes the unifying experience for all children and young people, rather than identifying what sets them apart from each other. Taking a developmental perspective gives us insight into the big picture of the child's life and helps us to view their behaviour within a dynamic relational context rather than becoming caught in the headlights of a medicalized symptom as the explanation for everything. I will now move on to briefly summarize some of the risk factors associated for children in general, and for those who receive what I call a foreclosing diagnosis of ADHD that may hide other complex factors. Firstly, we need to remind ourselves about acting at all times in the best interests of the child, and we need to note that these requirements are enshrined in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. These refer specifically to the rights of the child to be given a voice and to be heard. When we explore the risk factors for children and young people, we find that social and economic disadvantage play a significant role in con contributing to high rates of ADHD diagnoses where vulnerable families have borne the brunt of cuts in health and welfare services and the depletion of educational resources. The cycle of deprivation leads in turn to social exclusion for parents and children from beneficial supportive experiences and relationships. Social and economic disadvantage are often the twin of family and individual trauma where there has been family violence and children find themselves in out-of-home, institutional, and foster care. In our book, Rethinking ADHD, we describe the predicament of a young boy in foster care who had had an extremely traumatic early life that led to his overwhelming anxiety and difficulty with attention. Hastily diagnosed as being ADHD by his teacher, we found that helping those around him, including his parents and other members in the school setting, understand the meaning of his behavior in terms of his traumatic history was not only a support to them, but led to the behavior of the child himself becoming more contained. There are other risk factors that mitigate against children finding a place for themselves in the world. Ironically, the very problem we attribute to children and to adults, namely a problem with attention and hyperactivity is one that most appropriately describes the world in which we live, which is filled with deficits of attention at all levels. 
these global and societal, societal deficits of attention leach into adult life and parenting and change in turn aspects of the emotional and social landscape of childhood. So what sort of changes do we need to make and how can we view attentional problems differently? I have earlier referred to the main scaffolding of relationships, understanding the meaning of behavior and taking a developmental perspective as creating the building blocks for the life of our children and ourselves as parents and adults. These three areas interconnect with early infant experience and with attachment and bonding and lead to the capacity for self-regulation in children as well as adults. This in turn leads us to an entirely different way of formulating problems of attention and behavior. So instead of trying and indeed failing to isolate one discrete medical type of symptom, we change the focus to seeing these problems as inherent to a regulatory process. The infant young child and indeed older child cannot develop self-regulatory capacities without a preparation period of co-regulation with parents and caregivers. Co-regulation is part of everyday parenting in helping the infant to sleep, soothing the infant and child, feeding, supporting, and helping to socialize the child and young person by setting appropriate boundaries. The simple everyday presence of the parents provides a container for the child who feeling safe and supported can take them for granted and be free to extend their interest and expand their cognitive development. For adults, it is entirely appropriate that following something as life-changing as the pandemic, that they wish to take stock of their lives and review their experiences and how they hope to make changes for the future. It is unfortunate, however, when this kind of emotional stock-taking grinds to a halt around the need to find one answer to all of life's complexities. This may be due to the kinds of contemporary dominating discourses that identify and promote simplistic one-response answers to life experiences and complexities. We need to be reminded that life in and of itself is not psychopathology, and life requires to be negotiated rather than diagnosed. Life for many of us may be full of disappointments, missed opportunities, sometimes poor choices around partnerships, often not believing ourselves to be worthy. This is not intended as a criticism of people who seek ADHD diagnoses, but rather a comment about the dearth of the kinds of meaningful conversations we need to have about our lives. It leads to the atrophy of mature conversations about how to live well in life. It is concerning when reflection and a more mature understanding of our experience is regularly shouted down in favor of one-stop solutions. So what are some of the things we need to have a more mature conversation about that can lead to more direct change? And what are some of the things we should demand more appropriately as of right? Firstly, we need more active and interactive support for parents and parenting which can often be an isolating experience and one in which people fear they will be judged. People talk about the need for community engagement, but this needs to happen as part of real togetherness, not just online, to help us actively learn from and support each other. 
put the money into infant parent relationships and early childhood and the investment in terms of later positive mental health will have a hundredfold benefit. No need to keep providing the hard-nosed economic evidence for this. These calculations were made half a century ago and still hold good. It also has to go without saying, but I will say it again, that parenting is not solely women's business and fathers must not only take their cue from mothers, but, but must take their own initiatives to promote generous and engaged fathering of their children. The contribution and attention of the workplace is critical here as well and can easily be the subject of another con podcast. But suffice to say that the notion of a split between work and family life is not only antiquated, but unworkable in the broadest sense. We are not different people in the workplace and we do not cease to be parents, carers or adults contemplating our lives. Relational and family life is core business in the broadest sense. Creating a space for the truth of this experience, far from interfering with productivity, can only lead to the enhancement of capital in all of its forms to meet the challenges of our increasingly complex world. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www center for child and family.com that's a n d so www.centerforchildandfamily.com thank you